0: going to be in Acts chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 17. And the bulletin says 6 through 17. As I looked at it, I decided I wanted to include verses 1 through 5 in this. So Acts 12, 1 through 17. And as we come into this, last week's title uh, was bigger than we think. And we looked at how uh, God included in uh, the Gentiles with Cornelius and that, that situation with Peter and the vision and Cornelius Uh, And so this week, we're looking at the idea that God is better than we think. Before we go into this, I wanna make a a mention or I wanna make a note to you that we will be pausing our series on the book of Acts uh, until next year, beginning of 2024. We'll get back into it. Um, The reason I was gonna do that starting in November, but as I looked at this, starting in chapter 13, the book of Acts kind of goes in some ways a new direction. Uh, Peter and John and those in Jerusalem and all the apostles that were uh, centralized there were kind of the focus of the first half of the book of Acts. And then starting in in chapter 13, we really see Saul or Paul come to the forefront in his missionary journeys as he goes around and plants churches and shares the gospel, become uh, one of the major focuses of the book, although Peter is still in the book. Um, So uh, with that, starting next week, we will begin a new series, putting this on pause um, as we as we go. So with that, I want us to look at Acts chapter 12 verses 1 through 17. Let's begin in verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James the brother of John put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the feast of unleavened bread. and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison and he had no idea what the angel was doing, he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. And then when they went through it, they had, when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking and when they opened the door, saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, We thank you for this day you've given us that we can come and we can look at your word. That we can look at this story of Peter and we can see your goodness and your mercy and your providence all over it, Lord. And I pray that you will help us to look at this example and and figure out for ourselves what it means to follow you, what it means to have a relationship with you and that we can learn just how good you are because you are better than we think. And Father, I pray that you'll be with us this morning, that you'll help us to see clearly what your word says. You'll help us to see clearly who we are and and what you need us to do, what you call us to do, and that we'd be faithful in following you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we get into this, the first thing we see, the first thing about this passage, uh, for God to demonstrate his goodness, oftentimes there will be something negative that is happening. And that is the case that the believers find themselves in. King Herod is arresting some who belong to the church intending to persecute them. The first person mentioned is James brother of John. And we see that James is put to death with the sword. And he seizes Peter also to put him on trial because he sees that this makes the Jews happy. And so the first thing we're going to notice is that following Christ will lead to suffering. Following Christ will lead to suffering. I want you to imagine uh, the state of the believers at this time. Imagine as they see all these things happening. Good things have happened. The church has been growing, but all of a sudden, James has been killed. Peter's thrown in jail. What is happening? There is suffering that is happening. Christ promised this to the believers. In John fifteen eighteen through 20, it says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. We see this promise that following Christ will lead to suffering. Why? Because the world hated Jesus. Why did the world hate Jesus? We see this uh, in, in the book, earlier in the book of John when it talks about how the light came into the world but the world did not receive him because they loved the darkness that they were in. People in the world who are not saved and redeemed by Jesus Christ are walking in darkness. And that's a, a very clear metaphor and a very clear example of darkness being the evil of our sinful sinfulness. So people that are not in Christ are living in and loving their sin. And so if we have been redeemed by Christ, we have been brought out of darkness into the light by the work that he has accomplished, when we walk in the light, just as those who walk in darkness hated the light of the world, they will hate those who follow the light of the world. And so that will lead to suffering. The difficulty that can happen is that sometimes we don't experience suffering as we might. And there's a couple reasons for this. We live in a world, uh, we live in a a nation that thankfully does not persecute people based upon their religion. There we have a freedom of religion, we have a freedom to follow, we have a freedom to do things, express things uh, that people in biblical times did not have. And so when things started to cause problems for the government, they shut it down. They did not have the rights and freedoms that we do today. But the reality we know is that there is still very much evil and darkness in the nation that we live in, all around us. What Christians have to be careful to do is to live like Christ. We have to be very careful to live following Christ and not following the ways of the world. That is why it is repeated over and over and over in Scripture, to put to death the things of the world and to walk by the Spirit. But this promise of suffering will not happen if we are living and following the ways of the world. If we keep our mouths shut, as the world might want us to, that's what they wanted from Peter and John, don't preach in the name of Jesus. They might have lived a nice life. They might not have been thrown in prison. But they continued to follow Jesus in the face of persecution. What will we do as believers when we are faced with a difficult situation if you continue to follow Christ? If it becomes clear to you that if you continue to follow Christ, there will be a negative outcome. What will we do in that situation? Now we do live in a free nation, but we've seen how things have trended. It has become deemed hateful and bigoted to express to people that they live a sinful life. The idea is that you can be a Christian so long as you keep it to yourself. Now, we still do have freedom and protection of our rights, but what what would happen? Where would you be? What would your life look like if one day, as it very well could in the future, laws were passed that people ought not speak in the name of Jesus? Those laws exist elsewhere in the world. Would we be faithful as James was, who was killed for his faithfulness, would be faithful as Peter was, who was put in jail for his faithfulness. Because following Christ will lead to suffering. In this place, in this environment, it won't be as great as what they experienced. But elsewhere, there are believers that we ought to be praying for regularly that face this very reality, that they know that if they're obedient to Christ, they could could lose their life. So we should pray for them. We should pray for them. Because following Christ means being earnest in prayer. That's the next thing that we see. Because as Peter is in jail, verse five says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. They were earnestly praying to God for him. And so when we encounter suffering, when those around us encounter suffering, our first response should be to go to God Earnestly in prayer. I want you to put yourself in the situation that they were likely in a bit of a a panic. James had been killed. Peter was imprisoned by the same person who killed him, preparing to bring him onto trial. Notice here, this is uh, in many ways a a blessing for Peter of when he was arrested. Because he was arrested around a time where they were going to wait till after the Passover to put him to death. They were going to wait till after this was done to put him to death. So he's kept in prison. Notice, Herod is not wanting to make the same mistake that has been made before. They have four guards with him. Then they have two kept with him as he's in chains. What does, this, what does this signify? As we know before, Peter has already been released from prison by supernatural intervention. He doesn't want that to happen again. He doesn't want God to show up. He doesn't want something good to happen. So he's trying to make it stick. So Peter was in prison and likely the church was in a place of some amount of despair. But rather than despairing in this situation, they earnestly go to God in prayer. We see here a distinction between what happened when Jesus was arrested and Peter was arrested. When Jesus was arrested, those who followed him scattered. Their hope Seem to be lost. They didn't understand what God was doing. But after the resurrection of Christ and their following of him and the filling of the Holy Spirit, they understand that God is working among them, that God is doing things that they cannot understand. They understand that God has been better than they thought he was, and he will continue to be better than they thought he was. So rather than scatter and, and, and run away and to lose hope, they turn to God in prayer. They are asking God to intervene. One of the questions that we might face if you read the Bible, one thing that's very clear about God is that God is in control all the time. There is not a situation uh, where God cannot do what he wants. There's not a situation where something goes against what God is allowing or willing to happen. And so the question that we could have and the question that we might wonder, why do we pray then? Why would we pray If God's already in control, if God can and will do his will, why should we pray to him? Why should we ask him to do something if he can and will already do what he wants? Well, there are a few things we need to understand. Prayer is commanded by God. He tells us to pray. He tells us to seek him, to petition him. When we are anxious, cast all of our cares before him because he cares for us. He tells us through his word to pray to him. The second part of it is that prayer changes us. Through relationship and communing with the Father, we are able to get and see what his will is in the situation we're in. How many times in your life, if you've been following Christ faithfully for, for a while, I, I'm, I can almost guarantee you've experienced this. You go to God in prayer about a situation, What ends up happening by the end of it is that your perspective on the situation has changed. You are able to see a new thing that God is doing that you did not see before. Prayer will change us. It'll help remove our selfish motives that we may have. It'll help remove anything that would distract us or get in the way, our preferences, and will help us to see the heart of God and to live out the heart of God in our lives. So prayer will change us. But the final thing we see that really answers the question the most is that prayer prompts God to act. Now, that seems like a bold statement because who are we to tell God what to do or who are we that our petition would change God's mind? And we know that God uh, knows what is going to happen and we don't change God's mind. But it is clear through scripture that when we pray, God responds to the prayers of his people. And it is the prayer of his people that prompts him to action. Not because he did not intend to act, not because it was outside of his will. We are not changing the will of God. So we can look at things that have passed already to know what God's will was. So an example, when James was seized, likely there were people praying for him. That he would be delivered. And he wasn't. People cannot change what was going to happen. And we'll get to James in a moment. But when we ask God to do things, that is when God responds. It is not as though God is a genie, we do not control him. But God has repeatedly acted in a way that is consistent with and expressed to us that if we will ask him for things we need, He will respond. Our prayer prompts God to action. Not because he's unwilling to act, not because he isn't able to or not because he hadn't thought of it, but he commands us to pray. And when his people seek him in prayer, he is joyful and willing to respond to those prayers. So how then should we pray in these sorts of situations when difficulty arises? We should pray first effectively. We need to effectively pray. Well, this starts by actually praying. How many times in your life have you dealt with difficulty or dealt with a situation and you're talking to someone about it and they ask you, have you prayed about it? And the shameful feeling comes over you that you realize you've only been distressing and not praying. These things you ought to have taken to God long ago, you've only been running through the situations in your own mind. So it starts with praying, because the end of James chapter four, verse two, it says, you do not have because you do not ask God. So we must pray. We must actually pray to be effective in our prayers. Though God knows our desires, he commands us to pray. To be effective in our prayers means we need to petition him for the things that we need. An example of this, and I didn't tell her, but I'm gonna, and you see her face as I said that. But last night I went, to go get a drink from a gas station because just something I wanted and I said, I'm gonna go do that and I get back and Jada said, you didn't get me anything. I said, you didn't ask me to. God wants us to ask him for the things we desire, the things that we need. We also need to make sure that when we ask him, we're praying about the right things. The very next verse in James 4, 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. We should be praying about the things that God is concerned with, not our fleshly desires. And these will overlap because God cares for us. And when we have a need, it is right to ask. But when we ask for special movements of God, for him to do something above and beyond and in the excess of what is normal and right, it should be things that are for his glory and not for ours. We should be asking for things that will glorify God and not ourselves. And prayer is also most effective. If we want effective prayer, prayer is most effective when we are right with God. James five sixteen says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If we wanna be effective in our prayer, we need to make sure that we are seeking him in our lives, seeking to be righteous before him. But we also should pray earnestly. This is the word used in this passage that they were praying earnestly earnestly for Peter. This word could also be translated as eagerly or intensely praying for Peter. The root of that word, the the root word for that word used for prayer means to be stretched out. And the image that comes to my mind is we've probably all seen in some action movie at some point is a person hanging on the ledge of a cliff. And at that point, they are reaching with everything they have trying to take hold of the hand that's reached down for them. They are seeking after the thing that will be the deliverance. And so when we are praying earnestly, we are reaching out to God. We are asking him earnestly to intervene and to move in the situation we're in. Asking him to move earnestly. Another image of this idea of earnestness could be a child that is bound and determined about what they have their mindset on. You've never experienced that, have you? A child that will not stop asking until they get the answer they want. We should be so earnest in our prayers that we will not stop petitioning God. We will not stop taking our request to him until he moves. Now, does that mean that we are looking selfishly? No, we don't, we're not earnest about selfish things. We are earnest about things that we feel confident about that will glorify God. And because we are confident about what we are praying for, we can pray expectantly. We need to believe that God will come through, that God will work for his glory. We need to know that God desires good for us without doubting. James 1, six through seven, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. So as we're praying and as we do these things, we need to remember that following Christ means that God is on our side. If we have aligned ourselves with God, if we have aligned ourselves with Christ, dependent only by faith in what he has done, saved by grace through faith, God is on our side because we are on God's side. Now, we have to realize that It is possible for the believer to be disobedient and in those disobedient moments, through their actions, they oppose God. But we are on God's side because of what Christ has done. We have been reconciled to him. And if we've been reconciled, that also means that God is on our side. So what does this mean? It does not mean that God will grant any and every desire that we have. Clearly, we see this in this passage. Any and every desire we have will not necessarily granted, but it does mean that God will supply and help us as we seek to follow him. This is not a promise to do so in a way that we expect or initially want. God being on your side does not mean that God will do exactly what you want him to do. Each and every one of us have determinations and ideas of what would be best for us. If I said, what would be the best thing that could happen to you this week? Everyone's going to have a different answer. And God being on your side doesn't mean that those things are going to happen especially when those things are selfish rather than kingdom-focused, rather than looking at the things above. But it does mean that God will be glorified in and through our lives. God will be glorified through our obedience. And so we see these two men, James and Peter. There's no distinction between them. Doesn't say that James had done anything wrong. Doesn't say that, say that Peter had done anything right. They both, as we know, as, or as far as we know, are following God faithfully, being obedient fulfilling the ministry given to them. James is killed, Peter's arrested, awaiting trial. Peter experiences deliverance from his trouble and James, in an earthly way, did not. So the question we would ask, is God any less good because of this? Did God somehow let James down while coming through for Peter? Was, Of course not. The way God moves does not affect his goodness even if for us at times it's hard to understand. James' physical life was the only thing that ended. He received the promise that he'd been living for. So to say that God had somehow let James down is the most false statement that could exist because James was experiencing the fulfillment of the hope he had in Christ. In many ways, James was far better off than Peter, because Peter had a long road of people hating him, persecuting him, and reviling him before he, before he finally too was put to death because of Christ. James was spared those troubles. But the reality is both received a good thing. Peter's was earthly. He received a good thing earthly in his earthly life. He was released from prison, able to return to his people, able to continue working on behalf of the Lord. Notice there, freed to work for the Lord, not freed to gratify his desires. James received a good thing. His was eternal, the promise, the hope, the same hope Peter was striving for, the same hope that led Peter to continue to hope in God and to continue to face persecutions and sufferings. Because he knew one day he would be with God forever. He knew that one day he would be with his Savior. And for James, that came sooner than Peter. In both of these situations, God was glorified just in different ways. One, in, in James' situation, he was glorified through the faith and steadfastness of James. Imagine the witness. Imagine if you've heard the stories of those who've been martyred for the faith, imagine the witness to those who were there that this person to their very last breath proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the same witness that Stephen proclaimed that in his dying breath, he said, Father, do not hold this against them. What faith, what love for God is demonstrated for those who die for him. And so God is glorified when his people are faithful and steadfast in the face of the worst persecution, the taking of their earthly life. They fulfill what Jesus told them. They said, don't fear those who can kill the body with the sword, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. They are not fearing man. They are fearing God and serving him faithfully. That's what James did But God is also glorified through Peter, through the display of his goodness and and his mercy and his deliverance from the hands of those who would seek to do him evil. Both situations glorify God in different ways. And he glorifies him through his continued service to the Lord upon his release. And so we see the example of the attitude that we should have. Our attitude should be one of expectation with humble submission. So knowing that God is on our side, our attitude should be one of expectation with humble submission. We see this expressed beautifully in one of the favorite stories that we have that we we share with our children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That as they were told to bow before an idol, they refused. They were gonna follow the Lord. And they're arrested, and they're taken before the king, and they're threatened with being thrown into the fiery furnace. And he says, there's nobody. I've turned it up to the highest. It can be heightened. No God can save you from this. No one can deliver you from this. You should have worshiped my idol. And they respond in verses 17 and 18. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. They're expectant that the Lord can and will move. But even if he does not, We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They are expectant of the Lord, but they are humbly submitted to the idea that if he doesn't move, it is not his will to deliver them, they're gonna follow him. They're not gonna turn to an idol just because God did not do the thing they might've wanted. We see this also. We see how God is always working for our good, but our good does not always mean earthly deliverance. Our mean does not always mean the the removal of of something that is suffering. We must be submitted to the will of God knowing that it is better than our own. Jesus said this in the garden. As he's praying, preparing to go to the cross, knowing he's about to be arrested, about to be betrayed. Luke 22, 42 through 43. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He's expecting, he knows he, he's asking the Lord, yet not my will, but yours be done. Verse 43, we don't look at that one a lot. And an angel of heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. You see, Jesus knew the will of the Father. Jesus knew that it was the will of the Father for him to suffer. To bear the, the cup. Okay? It says the cup. It's the cup of the wrath of God. We see a full picture in the end of 2 Corinthians chapter five, we're in the middle of it at the end of the passage about the ministry of reconciliation. God made him, Jesus, to be who knew no sin, to be sin. Jesus experienced the wrath of God. The cup of the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And he knew that this cup would not pass. However, an angel appeared to him and strengthened him. Through the fulfillment of his will, the father encouraged him to continue to follow, to follow through with what he knew he was going to do. The work of Christ was not to be delivered from his enemies. This was similar to what happened to James. The, the will of God in James' life was not for him to be delivered. The will of God was for Jesus to die at the hand of his enemies for our good, but still in a way that the father responded to what Jesus had requested by sending the angel. Sometimes the will of God will not appear advantageous to us. Sometimes the benefit will be the benefit of others. But we know at the end of it all that God has given us all things through Christ. Any difficulty we face, any trial that doesn't go our way now is not worth comparing to what is to come. Romans 8.18 says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That we can face sufferings even when they don't end because the sufferings we endure now will will not be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed into us. This is the same mindset that any person that's ever been involved in a sport that works hard, that goes through those grueling practices knowing that in hoping for the, the idea of holding that trophy up in, in victory will be worth all the difficulty. Everything we face in this life will pale in comparison when we enter eternity and see the promise of our hope. When we are accepted into God's kingdom, when he has ma- wiped away every tear that we have, when there is no more death, no more crying, everything we've suffered here will not be worth comparing to that moment. But still, sometimes following Christ means that we will experience God's surpassing goodness. This is what I mean, that God is better than we think. So these believers were praying earnestly for Peter. And I'm certain that Peter too was praying, asking God to move. But even in that, they still did not expect and believe at first everything God was doing. If you remember, Peter, when he is led from the prison, what's he think? This is a vision. This isn't real. It's only later that when the angel disappears that he realizes he has just been set free from prison by the angel of the Lord, that he had led him out among many people guards, and among many others, he led him out of prison. And so he goes to this house and he knocks on the door where people are gathered. And the servant girl is so excited. I want you, this would be a hilarious movie scene. They need to recreate this. I think the chosen's going in the book of Acts. I hope they do this. Peter goes to this house, knocks on the door. It's me, Peter. She, She recognizes his voice. She knows it's Peter. And she's so excited that she goes to tell everybody else without letting Peter in. So Peter's just there and Hey, it's me, Peter. And she might maybe exclaimed like in excitement and ran away. Said, Peter's just standing there, knocking. You gonna let me in? And nobody believes him. Nobody believes her when she comes and tells him that Peter is there. He's not there. I promise. Well, it's, it's, it's just a, an angel or something. God was better than they thought. And that is when we experience God's surpassing Goodness. When we are following God's will faithfully, we will experience his providence and his goodness. This happens on a daily basis. His providence and goodness are all around us. The longer you follow God, the more aware you become of the daily blessings and graces he gives you. The things that he does on a daily basis that are from him for our benefit. And when we are in a right relationship with him, we are able to see those things for what they are. But on occasion we will see and experience the surpassing goodness of God. Now, when I say this, when I say that we will see it, it doesn't mean that it'll happen in our lives necessarily, but we will see it demonstrated in those around us. I'm confident that if you will think back and reflect on your life, you can think of moments where God shows up in a way that the only explanation is God. The only explanation is that God himself intervened. We've heard stories of people that have been healed after, after being, facing battling sicknesses. Doesn't pro, it's not a promise that every sickness will be healed. But in the times when it does, God gets the glory. There are people that are dealing with difficult and, and problematic things and God shows up and God gets the glory. These things are not promised to us. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not saying that if you'll just believe, God will do anything and everything that you want him and ask him to do. But when we ask in accordance with his will, God will move. Sometimes how we ask him to and sometimes not. But we pray with humble expectation. But sometimes, God will reveal that he is better than we think. It's not promised, but it is not rare. The most common repeated example is the salvation of the lost. Who but God and God alone can accomplish the salvation of one who is dead in their sin? It is only by God and his grace that we can be saved. And so we hear and we love those stories of people who are walking far from God, far into their sin, doing terrible things that God rescues and brings into the light. And through those moments, when the one who's been prayed for for years finally comes to repentance, when the one who no one thought would ever believe, believes, God reveals himself to be better than we think. We should be expectant that God will show up and God will move because we believe that he can. Without reservation, you should not doubt that God can move. But we are humble. Submitting to what he will do. My God can, but even if he doesn't, I will serve him. The last thing we see is that following Christ means the work continues. One of the problems that we face, I think, in our world is that oftentimes when we have a moment where something good happens, where we're delivered from something, be it by God or just some other situation, it tends to realign our focuses. Uh, There would be many people that if they were like Peter and had been thrown in jail uh, for not the first time and are delivered from it by supernatural means might say, you know what? Maybe I ought to change my priorities a little bit. Maybe I ought to go and do some things I wanna do. We see this often where people who have near-death experiences begin to uh, start living their life completely differently. They go and do other things. But when it it comes to following God and we see him work in our life, we see him move in amazing ways within our life, we must remember that the work continues. He doesn't deliver us for our own pleasures. He delivers us for his glory in our continued obedience. When Peter is released, he goes to his people to let them know what's happened, and he goes somewhere else and Acts doesn't go into a lot more detail about Peter, but I'm confident he continued to serve the Lord, to follow him faithfully. The temptation when getting a very good thing is to rest on one's laurels and do nothing more. This is the same attitude and mindset that causes the vast majority of people who win the lottery to go broke. They lose and and, and forget about any idea of money management and um, caring about money and waste all of it. It can be easy to rest rather than going forward in faithfulness. The good things we experience should prompt us to further service rather than giving us a place to rest and do nothing. We see this happen all time and time again through the people of Israel. God leads them out of Egypt, leads them into the promised land, all these good things. They go after other gods, they forget the Lord. And so, as you reflect on your life, as we come to this time, I want you to reflect on your life. And I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're in a place of suffering where it feels like everything's against you and everything's going wrong. God is good, and He loves you, and He is on your side. If you are in Christ, God is on your side through your suffering. You should share that suffering with other believers so they can pray for you, they can intercede for you, they can pray earnestly on your behalf. And God is good. And you should have an attitude of humble expectation, submitting to whatever his will is, but knowing that he can do anything that he wills, anything we ask him to do. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're in a pretty good place and you're reflecting on all the things that God has done in your life. You can look back and see the ways that God has guided you and delivered you from things, helped keep you away from great troubles, and delivered you from great troubles, how he has brought you to this place that is a good place in your life, maybe. The challenge then is to make sure that you are not a person that is resting and being content in remaining where you are after what God has done, as the people of Israel often did. That will lead to complacency, which will lead to sin in our lives, disobedience to God as we reflect on the good things that God has done for us, let us continue to move forward in obedience, knowing that whatever we face, God is good. And not just God is good, he is better than you think. And he can do things that will surprise us. And we should be praying that God will do things in our lives, in the lives of those around us, the lives of those around the world, and in the life of this church. To surprise us expectantly because he's better than we think, but humbly submitting to whatever his will is for us. The most important thing that you can understand, the most important thing that you can know, is whether God is on your side and whether you're on God's side. We've been talking about a lot of things about God being on your side and God uh, working for your good, but those are specifically talking about those who are in Christ. But for each person, God has already worked for your good. If you don't have a relationship with him, if you have not been saved by grace through faith, by repenting of your sin and and believing in the work of Christ, what he's done, that God raised him from the dead, you are apart apart from Christ. You are not on God's side. You are opposed to him if you have not decided to follow him and accepted the gift that he's made, that he's given to you. So today, the first thing you can do is to respond to that gift. And if you have, what you need to do is continue to serve him faithfully. The work continues. As we keep following him, as we keep facing difficulty and seeing the next good thing happen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. It's time that we can come together and we we can look at your word and we can just learn about what you did in the life of Peter and how you were glorified and what you did in the life of James. God, I pray that wherever we are as individuals, that each of us being in a different place, we would seek you and follow you. We would be obedient to you. We would pray for one another. We would pray for the situations we deal with. We would seek you expectantly. God, I pray that you would do things in our lives and in the lives of everyone here and in this church that are better than we think. God, we want you to move among us. We want you to revive us, to help us to see a movement of you that is surprising. To help enable us to share the gospel, to help enable us to glorify you, not for our glory, not for our acclaim, but your name, for your glory. God, I ask that you will do something incredible among us that can only be described as being from you. I pray that people will come to salvation. I pray that people will follow you faithfully, that we can be a church that honors you and glorifies you in all that we do. God, I pray that you will just firmly convict us and convince us of these things, that you are good, that you are worth serving, and we should follow you. I pray that you'll be with us this morning. I pray that if anyone does not know you, that they would turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? The altar will be open for prayer, and I'll be down front as well. We hope this sermon has been a blessing to you today. If you have any questions about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you through our church Facebook page, email, or by calling the church office.